Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Now, you're listening to the Red Sea Podcast. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Hosted by Jake Devereaux. Keaton DeRocher and Bob Osgood. Sale winds, he fires. Swing and a miss, thankfully it's over. The Red Sox have won the world championship. Welcome back to the Red Seat Podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux, and today joining us on the show is Bob Osgood of Over the Monster and... A special guest, a man who loves Man City football, Michigan football, but hates low minors, stolen base stats, and maple syrup. Special guest, Ian Cundell from Sox Prospects joins us for episode 287 of the show. Ian, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm not sure I'm worthy of such a great intro, but you nailed it. I mean, that's that was one of the most factual intros I've ever heard. <laughs> you know, I've listened to a lot of episodes of Sox Prospects, and uh, we, we've texted a good amount over the years, so I feel like I I have a good feel for your likes and dislikes at this point. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm pretty transparent when it comes to uh, my rooting interests with sports and uh, the things I don't like, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, we are we are very excited to have you on for this show. Um, Bob and I knew that, you know, as soon as the draft had finished up, there was only one name we wanted to bring on to the show to talk to, and that was you, um, because all of the work that you do at Sox Prospects is just phenomenal. Um, you know, as Red Sox fans, I'll say it again. I, I kind of say this every year, but we're spoiled to have a website dedicated to Red Sox Prospects and you know, talented people over there and you and Chris that do such a great job and all the other people contributing over there. So, um, yeah, if, if you're not a Sox Prospects fan, you probably don't uh, listen to us because we talk about you all the time. But um, you guys are still doing a little bit of a drive, right, for uh, for Sox Prospects right now. How can people help out over there? Yeah, we are. Um, first, thank you for the kind words. And, yeah, if you uh, if you enjoy the work we do or want to help uh, fund a lot of the stuff we do, a lot of, like we do a lot of traveling. I think that's one of the big separators with what we do. So uh, we go we go see all the affiliates. We're traveling all over the Northeast and all over the East Coast. Get down to spring training, all that fun stuff. Uh, we're currently in the middle of our uh, fundraising drive, and um, you can uh, donate. Uh, there's a link um, on the website to which you can donate. And uh, yeah, all the money gets, uh, we put it back into the cost to because we don't charge any subscriptions or anything like that. And so that's how we partially how we keep uh, the site free. So any support uh, you can provide if you enjoy what we do would be much appreciated. Perfect. Awesome. Bob, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, Jake. Uh, happy to have Ian on. You know, I know that 
he's been on a few years in a row now, right after uh, after the draft, and all of this information has been invaluable. Uh, so this is going to be a good conversation. I think we have a great agenda here, and uh, ready to dive into it and hear about this draft. It's a really exciting one, and a lot of kind of young athletic hitters that that they took early on that uh you know i don't feel like i have to talk myself into i looked at all of the the picks early on and it uh, made sense to me so I'm, I'm excited to talk about especially these early round guys here absolutely yeah we have a lot to talk about i'm just going to start with a large picture uh draft breakdown here so the draft this year was 20 rounds the red sox had 22 picks total including two fourth round comp picks uh, for losing Xander Bogarts and Nathan Eovaldi. With those picks, they selected 12 pitchers, 8 right-handed pitchers, 4 left-handed pitchers. Uh, 11 of those pitchers were college pitchers, and the 20th round selection was the only high school pitcher that they took. They also took 10 position players, one college catcher who was their first round selection. We're going to talk about him in a moment. Five shortstops, three from high school, two from college, and four outfielders, three from college and one from high school. Overall, I think that the big thing that I took away from this draft was that uh, Heim Bloom is is you know going back to what really worked for him last year, uh, especially with the Roman Anthony pick. But you know, I noticed that they were drafting uh, athletes this year uh, even more than in past years. It, it felt like. You know, for a while there, Ian, and, uh, you know, you can speak to this much better than I can, but I feel like initially looking back to 2020 and maybe 2021 to some degree as well, the Red Sox were taking a lot of guys with particular skill sets, whether that's a hit tool or maybe a lot of power, but maybe some hit tool concerns. And and now it looks like they're really betting heavily on athletes. And I think that's overall a really positive thing for the system. How do you think about that? I, I would agree. I think that, as you said, um, that was a very good call that it's pretty similar, even though there's a new scouting director this year is a pretty similar kind of format to what they did last year. And I, I, it's pretty similar how I would approach the draft. I think that the best chance of hitting, you know, big, which is obviously the goal is to find the highest, the best players possible is by going to the high school level and targeting very athletic guys with you know good hit tool good makeup things like that and it seems like the class that they got with those early picks really fits that mold and then when you look at the college guys they got later and this actually applies to kyle teal the first round pick too is those are all guys who just can really put the bat on the ball and it's something that they've really done well um chase Mydroth from last year's draft someone already up in double a hitting well and you know, I think with the way baseball is evolving, um, you want guys who can who are fast, you want guys who can defend, and you want guys who can make contact. And I think that that's really what they've kind of targeted also, in addition to obviously those higher upside high school guys. And I think they have a really nice mix on the offensive side with that. And then when you look at the pitchers, um, you know, it's, it's pretty similar to last year's. And, you know, you take a lot of pitchers, take guys that have things you like, whether it be, you know, fastball shape, fastball command, a certain secondary pitch bring them into the system and if you trust your pitching development which i think has the pitching development staff has been doing a really good job of late i think we've seen you know you're starting to see some of the gains this year at the major league level it's finally translating there and i think after uh 
after the last few years, obviously there were a lot of people, I think, questioning the pitching development, talking about how the, their inability to develop starters or anything like that. And I think they're kind of showing that they've really turned the corner in that regard. And I think think the guys they drafted here really fit that mold. And there, there's a chance some of them could. I know they're they're not the big names that you you saw go in the first couple of rounds, but I think there's a chance that some of them could uh could turn into you know legit prospects or higher guys who you know end up getting ranked you know top twenty, top thirty of the system pretty quickly if they get in the system and they they make the necessary adjustments and strides and uh, just develop properly. Yeah, I mean, Bob and I were talking about this, uh, uh, I think it was last month when we had Jeff Ponce from um, Baseball America on the show, just that there's there's probably more interesting pitching prospects in this Red Sox system. I mean, I think we could probably pretty easily come up with 20 names of guys that we are actually legitimately interested in as prospects uh, in this system right now on the pitching side of things. And, you know, Ian, I know you've been doing this for... I don't know, close to 10 years or maybe longer at this point, but it it feels like this is the most amount of interesting pitching depth that the Red Sox have had, at least since I've been following it. Yeah, I would agree. I I was just thinking about that. I was looking at our top 60 and and like, there are some guys we don't even have in the top 60 that I have in my personal one, or I think could be that I, I, just aren't on the radar at all. And I would still call them interesting. And, you know, if we're getting guys outside of our top 60 that I still think are interesting, that's a really good sign for the health of the system. And I think it just kind of, we don't want to get too uh, distracted from the draft, but it's just kind of the way the system is evolving in that they've reached a point where they have a lot of interesting players. You know, they might not, they don't have that high end talent really like that dearth of it that you see with some of the top systems in the game. Like I think the Orioles, you know, they have five, six, seven guys like that, or even Tampa has a few, but what they do have is they have a bunch of guys who are interesting who could probably you can see, you know, getting to the big leagues in some capacity. And that's a start. You know, that's that's the way you fill out rosters. That's the way you can afford to go out and spend, you know, 30 million dollars on Rafael Devers, 30 million dollars on another position player is by having those cheaper guys in the bullpen, filling out the back of your rotation positions like that. And um, even the bench, you know, bench hitters, things like that. And, and I think that even though the system might not have that many star caliber players yet, they're going in the right direction very quickly when it comes to getting that depth to be able to, you know, bring up homegrown depth. So you don't have to go out and pay five, $10 million for a bench player or for, you know, a bullpen arm. Yeah, I completely agree with that. But as your, uh, as your co-host says, uh, Chris, we are burying the lead here. Uh, we've got to get to Kyle Teal. Um, top yeah. top pick for the for the Red Sox, Kyle Teal, catcher, drafted out of Virginia. He's a left-handed bat. Um, Baseball America, uh, which does a great job of covering all this stuff, uh, goes through and kind of gives superlatives. They rated him as one of the best athletes in the entire draft. He was the ACC Player of the Year, a college first team All American, uh, and a consensus top ten talent that slipped all the way down to fourteen for the Red Sox. So I was really surprised that they were able to get Kyle Teal at this spot. What kind of a player are the Sox getting here? And, you know, how did Kyle Teal fall this far to the Red Sox? Yeah, it's an interesting one because, of course, I do a lot of draft prep and did not really look into Kyle Teal. I'll admit it. (laughs) I did not see any circumstance that he would be there when they picked at 14. But I think that's just how the board fell. Like, it was clear there were the top five guys and the top five guys were going to be the top five picks. And that's exactly what happened. And then after that, it seemed like there was kind of a mix. You know, there was there, you saw a lot of names I feel like linked with Oakland, Cincy, Kansas city, like in people in that stretch. 
And I think it was just one of those things that can happen in the draft where he just got squeezed out of, you know, he wasn't a target for, you know, Oakland, let's say, or Cincinnati, Colorado wanted pitcher, Miami wanted a pitcher, Kansas City took a catcher, but they wanted the high school kid because I'm going to guess he's going to get a smaller bonus. Like things like that can just happen in the draft. Weird things happen. And the Red Sox just happen to be the beneficiary of it sitting there at 14th and watching a guy who is a consensus top 10 talent fall to them. And he fits what they could use really well. I mean, he's a potential two-way catcher um, on offense. As you said, he was ACC player of the year this year, hit 407, 475, 675. His exit velo data and like his uh, advanced like bat of ball metrics are right up there with the guys who went ahead of him. Um, you know, 106 mile an hour, 90th, 22% chase rate, like 82% contact rate. So there's some really nice underlying data there with his offensive profile. And his defense is legit. Like he's a guy who's one of the best framers in the draft. He's got a good arm. Um, like his pop times are above average to plus, you know, 1.9 seconds or so. And to get a two-way catcher who could probably move pretty quickly because he's a pretty polished college player at 14, is just, I, I think, a really good stroke of luck for the Red Sox. And it just, we've seen this year the impact having a good defensive catcher can have with Connor Wong up at the major league level. And the fact that they got someone who, you know, if everything breaks right, they could pair with him for years to come is a really nice outcome considering we've seen, like, they have a lot of quote-unquote catchers in the system, but I'm not sure how many are actually catchers, if that makes sense. You know, they have a lot of guys who are playing it right now, but their bat might be ahead of their glove. And the bar for being a major defensive catcher at the MLB level is very high these days, especially with how important and how prevalent stolen bases are. And, you know, if they could be running out in two to three years, a combo of Teal and um, and Connor Wong, like that's among, you're not probably not going to find much of a better defensive duo than those two at the major league level. And I think it's pretty exciting that they were able to add him at uh, 14. Yeah, it is really exciting. And, and I think that especially looking at the Red Sox system, you know, you mentioned it. There's a lot of interesting players at catcher in the system right now. Guys like Nathan Hickey and uh, Garcia, who we're going to talk about a little bit later. But, you know, as you said, it's not sure a thing that either of those guys are going to be able to stay there and, and start at that position. Looking at uh, Teal, though, you, know, you guys have to do this every month. You have to figure out where these guys are going to rank, you know, Obviously, Marcelo Mayer, he's at the top top of the rankings. Um, I don't think he's going anywhere, but I think that, you know, Teal is one of those guys you have to really think about, given that he's so polished and he's a two-way catcher and the proximity to the majors and all that stuff. I mean, you have to think about him as a potential top three guy in the system at this point, don't you? Wouldn't go that far yet. I, I think we're, we tend to start guys a little lower just because we want to get eyes on them. We want to be able to get more report, reports, and you never know how someone's going to adjust the pro ball. I think you know it's uh, it can take some time, and uh, we've seen it with certain guys that maybe you know it takes a little longer than others. And so I, I think we'll probably start them a little lower. I think it'll be five or six, seven, like in that range. But I think that's also due to like when you look at the guys ahead of him, they're all the proximity. They're all very close to the big leagues, safer Anthony and Blaze who are just obviously the the big high upside plays. But um, I think it just shows how strong the top five to six is that we're, you know, not considering him immediately as a top three prospect. I think, um, you know, all those guys, you can make a case for all of them being like borderline top 100. Um, obviously, like Meyer is well in it, but they, they, all those guys are going to be in the top 100, top 150 or so prospects on those on the national lists. And I think that, um, yeah, it just comes a lot down to personal preference. 
And I think just with someone like Teal, I want to see how he adjusts to Pro Bowl and see him, you know, get some firsthand reports on him before we move him that high, I would think for now. That makes sense. Yeah. Maybe maybe a little bit early next year he'll be up that high. Yeah. Like if you told me within by next year's spring training he was in the top three, I wouldn't be surprised at all. But I, we just got to see it too because – you know, there there are like as exciting a, a player as he is. Obviously, he did fall to fourteen. There, there's, there's, there's some things that you know, maybe he he's more power over hit. Like you just don't know how those guys are going to adjust. So we want to see. Yeah. In the uh, you know the point that I hear a lot is that you don't draft for organizational need, right? If you got a draft, you already have a center fielder. Obviously that player can move to a corner infielder you already have enough shortstops they can move to third or to second or even corner outfield um with teal with catchers i feel like it's a little bit different like i kind of group the catchers differently because i think that they can have such uh you know you, you're not going to convert to catcher um i think it can have such an impact on the organization both at that position as well as with the pitching staff you know the a Buster Posey or an Adley Rutschman, how much that can kind of shape the organization. So do you think with the organizational need, it's a little bit different at that position compared to other, um, you know, different position players? Yeah. I, I mean, I think it catchers a very specific skill set. It takes a certain type of player to, to play back there. And I think we've seen too, that just because, you know, there are certain pitchers, pitchers are weird. Like some pitchers like throwing to some hitters, others don't, you know what I mean? Like right. there's no guarantee um, that, you know, a pitcher is going to like throwing to him, but I think everything we've seen of the reports are good. And I think that he, he checks all those boxes you look for when you're looking for a catching prospect. And even if you don't necessarily need one in the system, which I, I mean, I think he's like when a talent like that falls, you just have to pounce. Like you can't let that guy keep falling. If you're the Red Sox, um, even if, you know, maybe unless obviously if you had someone higher on your board than you do, but I, I think it was pretty clear that he was the highest on their board when they came up to pick. Looked like that room was pretty excited that he was still there. I mean, yeah. I saw some of the video and everybody was exchanging hugs and stuff. I, I think that was a bit of a surprise. Yeah, I mean, it, as we said, like the draft can be weird. Like things can just happen. A guy can get caught in a numbers game where, you know, maybe a team likes him, but the other guy that they also like similarly is willing to take a million dollars less. Like we don't we don't know exactly. No, I'm interested to see what he signs for, obviously, because I mean, it sounds like it's going to be a little under slot, which is kind of crazy too when you think about he's he went below where he was projected, and still is gonna they're gonna save some money there. So yeah, I just think uh, it's a very exciting selection, and I'm I'm really looking forward to getting to to see him hopefully later this year or early next year. Just to close the book on this before we move on to the second and third round picks, I mean, adding Teal to the system. Where do you think about catcher in regard to the other positions in the system at this point? Because now it seems like catcher, with the addition of Teal, with how you know Stephen Scott and uh, Nathan Hickey are playing, and John Fran Garcia, and you know all these different guys, it now seems like catcher might be one of the stronger positions that the Red Sox have in their system at this point. Um, yeah, I mean, I, they have a lot of guys there. I think it's just kind of what I said earlier. It, we're not sure how many of them are long for the position or could play right. it at the, the major league level. Um, I think it's pretty clear that middle infield is the deepest position in the system. I, I don't think that's, you know, that's yeah. not, that's not an outlandish thing to say when they're having to move guys up because like Chase Mydroth literally had to go to Portland just because they didn't have enough playing time for the other guys there. It's <laughs> a really um, good sign. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I think catcher is definitely making its way up and, it, it's just it, it, it does feel different when you have that like high end catching prospect who's a college guy who, as you said, is more polished. Having someone like that, it just it really does elevate the position because 
they have, as you said, a lot of the guys that I like, and I'm a big John Fran Garcia guy. I obviously like Nathan Hickey's bat a ton. But they didn't have a guy like Teal. They didn't have a guy who had that combination of defensive and offensive upside. They had some really good offensive prospects there. They had some good defensive prospects who had no chance of hitting. And so when you, you know, to be able to bridge that gap with someone like Teal is really exciting. Yeah, so you know, you mentioned shortstop, and there was no way that we were going to get past the second or the third round without the Red Sox <laughs> taking a high school shortstop. They're not from California, so. though. Like, I know. It's they wild. really went off script this <laughs> I year. I was shocked. Shocked no Southern California shortstop. Well, they got one, just just not where they usually did. They got it's one later right. on. <laughs> well, right. kind of. He's center fielder, but yeah. So with uh, Nizan Zanatello in the second round from uh, Christian Brothers College High School and then Antonio Anderson, another shortstop in the third round, they were the 50th and the 83rd pick. Let's start with uh, Zanatello. I know both of these guys very athletic. Um, They kind of, as we mentioned early in the draft, went after that uh, prototype. Um, What kind of a player are the Red Sox getting in in Zanatello to start? Uh, Zanatello is really exciting. He was actually someone that... uh that we identified uh, pretty early or someone who I, when I was looking, doing over the draft boards that I was pretty intrigued by um, because just, he's got a really interesting combination of tools, like great athlete. As you said, I think they, they showed it. Uh, I might, they might've shown on, talked about on the draft, but he's got like a 42 inch vertical leap. Um, you know, you run a 60, like six, three sixty guy. So plus speed, he can hit the ball 450 plus feet. We, you've seen the videos of him just hitting these mammoth home runs where the bat and where the and they're with wood where the bat the ball just sounds like it makes that nice sound when it comes off the bat. And it seems like he can hit. And you know that's obviously the big question mark. And I think that's why like Roman Anthony last year fell because there were questions about how his hit tool would translate. And obviously he's greatly exceeded expectations with that. And um, with Zanatello, yeah, that's you know the question is what how is the hit tool going to develop? But when you look at the other tools like defense is potentially good above average to plus he can run he's got plus power like you know there's a potential for a five tool guy and to get a talent like that in the second round is just really exciting and i think it it fits the mold of what they've been looking for and you know the makeup is apparently off the charts too like great works hard you know really good like leader type player and they, they love guys with that type of makeup to bring a bunch of those guys in and you know everyone's trying to one-up each other to be the best and you know, I, I think that he's someone who fits right in right in with what they've been trying to develop culturally and then tools wise, he's got you know, he checks all those boxes too. So to be able to get a guy with that much upside in the second round is really cool and very exciting for the system as a whole. I don't quick follow up about Zanatello as well. I mean, th- this pick was really interesting to me because he had a lot of variance between what different outlets thought about him. You know, everybody agreed that he was a great athlete. B.A. had him as one of the most athletic guys in the draft class. But then again, B.A. didn't have him ranked in the top 100 of their prospects. But then there were a bunch of other people, and if Fangraph stands out, I think they had him at 31. Why do you think there was such a range of opinions on Zanatello? Some people talked about him as just purely an athlete, you know, a little bit of a raw tool set. But other people saw him in... They saw all the positive attributes about Zanatello. They saw the athleticism. They saw the success that he had in high school. Um, and they also saw that he was, like, really young for this draft class. I mean, he literally just turned he just 18. He just turned 18, yeah. So, I mean, I 
I kind of tended to agree more with the the 30, like the top 30 ranking there yeah. uh, that I saw. But like, why do you think some people had him slipping outside of the top 100? Yeah, I think Keith Law and Kylie also had him in there, like around 30-ish, not necessarily in the top 30, but in that like first round supplemental range. Um, yeah, I, I think it, a lot of it just comes down to the hit tool. You know, there, there's risk there. Um, he... You know, it, he had some trouble, I guess, uh, this like in the past summers with like some good fastballs up in the zone. And obviously there are some people who are, you know, I think some just great hit tool more important than others when it comes to things like that. And that's probably the, the main reason is if, if you're not sure he's going to hit, then you can bump him down a little bit. But I think, yeah, I just I, I like I give me as much upside as possible with that pick like the Red Sox. You know, getting you got the safe. You kind of had a safety net with Teal in the first round. You can take some risks with your second round pick, and if if you think Zanatello has the highest ceiling of the guys available, plus he's got there's like a lot of projections still to go. Then yeah, I'm I'm all for taking someone like that. A hundred percent agree with you there. Absolutely. And then in the third round, um, moving on to Anderson, you know, switch hitter who, from what I read, had a stronger swing from the left side. Um, but seems like he has a pretty decent chase rate, um, can get on base, and has speed. So I know going into the second day, um, you know, our pal and yours, Chris Clegg, was really high on Anderson, thinking he was one of the better <laughs> players that was available that day. So I talked to him a little bit about that, and, and he was excited about Anderson and thought it was a good pick that, that he lasted to the second day there. Um, what are your thoughts, and, um, you know, where, I guess, kind of with Anderson – and going back to Zanatello, do you see these guys uh, position-wise? Do you think they both can can stay at shortstop, or do you see just kind of with everybody that you go as long as you can, and then you see kind of who moves off the position from there? Yeah, with with, uh, with Zanatello, I think you definitely start him. He's up the middle. He's going to play shortstop, maybe second base, or more likely you push him to center field if he's not going to stick it short because with that type of athlete, you want him running around and moving in space. Um, Anderson is a little different in that I, I think that – He's someone who's more likely to push to third base if he has to. He seems like he's more of an offensive kind of oriented prospect. Like he's not going to be a bad defender, but he's not as fluid as uh, Zanatello or some of the other guys they took a little later. And there's a chance, especially with his size, I think he's like 6'3", 200. He's more kind of developed right now that he might end up moving to third. But with him, you're just you're going for the bat. Like he's a switch hitter, which obviously who doesn't want switch hitters are great to have in the system, especially if they're guys who can hit from both sides. And he's got pretty big power potential. You know that that talk about that frame, some high exit velos. But I think with him, it's just the question is is with the the swing. You know, I, I watched some video of it, talked to some scouts, and there's definitely some guys who are skeptical that with what his current swing looks like, that he'll be able to consistently make contact. And I know he's had, as you alluded to, he's had some trouble with that in the past. So I think that's the big question with him and what caused him to fall a little bit is that there are questions with the hit tool, but there's certainly upside there. And, you know, when, if you can go out and you're trying to find a, you know, what, what, what they look like when they're that age, the guys who develop into legit offensive threats, like he definitely checks all those boxes. So if you, you know, yeah. if, if he ends up being an offensive first infielder and he hits for average and power, I think they'll, they'll, they'll be fine if the defense is, you know, pushes him to third base or something like that. Yeah. And, um, Kind of one more question, just to to close the loop on the first three players that they took here. Uh, you know, you, you feel like every year I kind of have you give the 
30 second overview of how everything works with the the slot and and how much money they have to spend and what they can move around it's confusing the first round slot that they have is at 4.66 and then the second round is at 1.7 and then their third pick is at 850,000 um do you i guess one do you have any concerns of them not being able to sign any of these players and do you think that you know any of those three you mentioned that the teal could go under slot kind of how that ends up fitting in um for each of the first three picks well, I think Teal will be under slot, and I think based on what you saw with, I'm sure we'll get into it, with the rest of their draft, they took college guys for the rest of the the their extra fourth round picks, their three fourth round picks, and then five through ten, yeah. and a lot of them were seniors, so they were definitely looking to save some money there, and I think that's because Zanatello is already is going to be well over slot. Um, they talked. It was talked about on the draft or after the draft. He, I think, he said that he was discussing going to the Nationals with their pick. I think it was forty or forty one or something. And I would assume he's going to get more than that. So that would be 2.1 million as a baseline. So he's probably going to end up, you know, in the two, three to two, maybe even up to two, eight, two, nine range, something like that. And Anderson, similarly, like he's a guy who definitely has leverage and he's got a good commitment to Georgia Tech. I think he's going to be seven figure guy easily. So I think what they're going to end up doing is they'll save some money with Teal. They have obviously 600,000 or so to work with from the 5% overage that you get with your bonus pool um, before you get you hit the tax line where you lose picks. So they'll spend all that. So I, I think they're, they're, they're going to sign them. If they take a guy in the top 10 rounds, usually they're going to sign them. They have to or they lose that pool money. But um, I think that, yeah, Teal will be under slot and the other two will be significantly over slot. All right. Well, moving on to the fourth round and uh, and a little bit further on from there, um, you know, the, fo- the fourth round was interesting for the Red Sox because they had their own pick and then they had a couple compensation picks uh, that they got for losing Xander and Eovaldi. Um, with their first fourth round pick, they took Matt Duffy uh, and then went back to back college shortstops with Christian Campbell and Justin Reimer. Um, let's start with Matt Duffy here. Um what do you think stood out about Duffy? Because initially some people were guessing that maybe this is one of those picks to save a little bit of money, and perhaps it is, but it seems like the Red Sox really do like the skill set that they have here uh, with Duffy. So so let's start with him. What do you see from Matt Duffy's uh, scouting report that makes him so attractive to the Red Sox? I think that uh, there's a few things, and yeah, that that was. I remember when he was drafted. There were a lot of people talking that he was going to be just a well under slot guy, but he's got a commitment to South Carolina, which is obviously one of the top you know teams in the SEC. So, if you know if if he's going to South Carolina, he's probably pretty good. Um, they're not going to take you know you're, it's going to take some money to sign him away. So I think I don't think he'll get slot, but I think he'll get pretty close to it, and so he'll probably you know get five hundred four hundred fifty thousand something like that. But I, I think what they saw with him is that he's got he's a three pitch guy, um, fastball changeup slider, really good command and control, like through a ton of strikes, and he also he's shown some bat missing ability. Even though his velocity is like eighty eight to ninety two, but he's been up to ninety five. But he still is able to miss bats with that. And I think you when you look at his uh, delivery, he's got a pretty deceptive delivery. He gets good extension. And those are some the the extension things like and the command and control obviously things they've targeted in the past and I think that him having those and if you think that you can add some velo to that that becomes really interesting you know if you can get him into consistently in the low 90s and still up to 95 
you know, that that becomes a different story, especially if he's got good feel for a changeup and a slider. So I think it's just, yeah, they, they like, you know, the pitch traits there. They like his delivery. They, they like his aptitude on the mound. And then you think when you bring him to the system, you can get a couple extra ticks on the fastball velo. And then, you know, you're cooking and you've got someone who's a potential starter with three pitches. Yeah, I like that. It's, it seems like a nice ball of clay to start working with. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's I, I, I like those guys too because, like, he's polished. And worst case, you know, you're going to get a guy who's going to get to AAA and give you solid innings in the minors. Like, that's the baseline. And if you get any more than that, especially with a fourth-round pick, that's a great outcome. So, they're, they're just, you know, there's not a lot of risk with taking a guy like him there. And the two comp round picks, uh, Christian Campbell and, and Justin Reimer, these were a little bit different. Um, Campbell had a really good season at Georgia Tech, um, certainly has a lot of speed, seems like he might be able to play a little bit all over the place. But Justin Reimer was a guy that was hurt a lot of the season. So what do you think they saw in these two players and how do you envision them fitting in with the Red Sox system? I think that both of them check one major box that the Red Sox have really emphasized and it's they don't strike out. Um, Reimer had some of the best uh, bat-to-ball skills of anyone in the draft, and I think that if he hadn't torn his ACL pretty early on in the season, he might have gone significantly earlier than this. Um, he just doesn't strike out. He, he makes a ton of contact. Like, when, when the season ended, he had 31 at-bats. He had two strikeouts and 15 walks. In, so he had you know almost 50 plate appearances with two strikeouts. That's crazy. Yeah. That's, that's so look insane. at that 563 OBP. I was yeah. Mention that. Yeah. And like yeah. last year he had 12 strikeouts in like 200 plate appearances or 180 plate appearances. Wow. Like he just doesn't strike out. And as we've seen with like like the shift being taken away, if you can get guys who can put the ball in play, like there's kind of been kind of a revitalization with those guys. Like look at Luis Arise. You know he made the All Star. Obviously you're not going to comp a guy to Luis Arise, but. <laughs> that type of profile is it's i think can play again like you know you don't have to obviously it's good if you can impact the baseball and you need guys who can impact the baseball you can't have a full lineup of that but if he's a guy with elite bat to ball skills or even above average like that's something that in in the fourth round why not like see what you can you know see if he can add some pop see if you know if, if the glove is good maybe he can he probably moves to second base is what i heard but you can carry a guy like that and worst case, maybe you get a bench bat out of it or, you know, a solid or guy. Like I like that pick. I, I like the Anderson pick too. And I think he's, he's in the same vein. Like he had one of the lowest strikeout percentages in all of uh, division one this year. I think it was like 8%. So he doesn't strike out either, but what's different for him, for, for those two, for me is that Anderson's like, or sorry, Campbell is six, three, like 190 pounds. You know, wow. he, he's got the size of someone that you think would be able to have some power. And I do wonder if he's someone that, their scouts liked um, like the tools, you know, like they like the bat to ball skills. They like the speed, as you said, um, they like the, the, the athleticism in the field. And maybe they think with a swing change, they can unlock some power potential with him because, you know, with a guy like him, if, if with that type of size, like there's, there's going to be some pop in there. So I do wonder if he's someone they're going to work with. Cause I know watching some video of his swing, it's pretty interesting. Um, like it's a really short swing. He's right on the plate and just kind of looking to put the ball in play. I wonder if they, they try to tweak that a little bit, get him to drive the ball more and, they can unlock some power there, um, especially because he's a, he's an interesting case too. That he was a college freshman this year. At, uh, he was obviously he was twenty one this year or twenty this year, but it was his freshman season which made him draft eligible. So he he is not he doesn't have a ton of college experience or anything. Like it's not like it's more like they're taking like a junior college kid, you know, after only one year of playing college. So I think there there's there's a lot of upside there if they can unlock some things and get him in the dev program. So I, I like those two picks, especially considering, you know, what they're likely to sign for, which is around slot or so or under. They just need to show Christian Campbell all the Ellie De La Cruz, all the <laughs> O'Neill Cruz videos. Yeah. And just be like, you gotta do this, man. 
he also needs to grow like three inches for that. But you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, our, yeah. Go yeah. ahead. Sorry, Jake. I was just gonna say, closing out uh, the second day, there was a whole lot of, of, of pitchers that went from there. You know, Connolly early in the fifth round, C.J. Wines, who was one of the seniors in the sixth round. Caden Rose was an outfielder, then Trenner O'Donnell, a uh, right-handed pitcher from Ball State, another senior, uh, Blake Wehunt from Kennesaw State, a junior, and then Ryan Ammons, a left-handed pitcher from Clemson, was a senior. Uh, so, you know, Wines, O'Donnell, Ammons were all seniors in the 6th, 8th, and 10th rounds. Is that kind of what you were alluding to, to maybe cancel out some of the uh, higher slot players in the 2nd and 3rd rounds that they might be able to, to give a lesser contract to there? Yeah, I mean, when you look at, like, we, I think Weens and I want to say O'Donnell are graduate students. So um, those guys are not going to require very big slots. Uh, I know, I think Amons is a senior. Um, we Hunt and Rose have already signed, and they, they knew those numbers, and I'm going to guess they're, you know, maybe 150K for Rose, 100K or so for We Hunt, something around that. So they're going to save some money, I would guess, with those guys too. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that – Again, it's like when you look at like I like the early pick a decent amount. The more I've dug into it, um, he was a big big time performer this year. UVA is obviously one of the top programs in the country. Uh, he was eighty seven innings, eighty two uh, hits, uh, twenty three walks, hundred strikeouts, three hundred nine ERA, one two WHIP. Like that's that's those, those are really good numbers, especially with the bat they were using this year. Right, and I think that what they saw with him is someone another guy who throws strikes. Uh, he's the fastball is a little light. You know, he's it seems like he's like 88 to 92 again something like that 89 92 but he's got good command and control and then he's got you know two to three secondary pitches that he's got a good feel for and maybe a couple of those might already be like 50 55 pitches potentially and again you know you bring him in the system if you can get a little velo on that it becomes really interesting and i think that yeah if you're, you're taking guys with feel and um good command you know as i said with duffy like worst case those guys get to the high minors and best case you know maybe you get a back end starter out of them and so um i like the early pick and i i think he's someone who's kind of a little of a sleeper of mine from this draft class and then with the later guys you know they took it was interesting a couple of them are huge like i think we hunt and o'donnell are both like six seven um so you know you never know what 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 those guys uh maybe maybe something clicks with them in pro ball and you can unlock some velo or if not again like pretty safe draftees and then ween uh wines and and amens are uh kind of more reliever types but both through a ton of strikes and miss bats and they both have funky deliveries and so you know maybe you can get something out of that i I know amens too was is interesting because he was going to be one of clemson's uh, better starters this year but he he had uh some forearm soreness and caused him to miss like two months and so he just returned as a reliever instead of pitching as a starter, but he basically was their closer for the end of the season. He was very good in that role. So it'd be interesting to see if they develop him as a starter or a reliever. But yeah, I, I think that, you know, they're all interesting guys. You get them in the system, you get them with your working with your pitching dev staff and you see what you can get out of them. And, you know, when you're saving money, that's what you got to do. You got to find those guys that, you know, a scout has conviction on and your, your dev staff believes they can improve. And I'm, I think they, they found some of those guys and now it's just up to see what happens when they get them in the system. You you mentioned that Devin Pearson, this was his first draft, and he had a couple interesting um, comments about some of these pitchers that he drafted and and talking about in particular, you know, them having specific pitch pitches or pitch traits that he likes as sort of a starting set. And he mentioned with a couple of these big guys, uh, you know, the, the big fastball being one of the things that he likes to build off of. Why is that important? for you know have for for them to have that foundation of a good fastball 
to kind of start off the the development. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what it is is that when it fastball shape has obviously become kind of really like. I think it's like the new cool kid in baseball almost um and obviously behind the scenes it's been like that for a while but i feel like it's becoming more public because we're starting to understand pitch data more and you've seen that like just because you might not have the best velocity if you have certain shapes your pitch is going to play um you know I, I look at the big leagues now and you've got some guys up there who people kind of wrote off because they were two pitch guys or because their fastball is a little light and if your fastball has certain you know if it's up in the zone and you can throw it with carry you know you can still miss bats doesn't matter what the velo is and the same thing or you have a really heavy sinker and you just get a bunch of ground balls and i, I think that with with some of the big guys you know they, they might not have the best velo uh might not stand out on statue but if they got high under vertical break they're able to get that really good like life up in the zone as they call it these days um you know maybe they can outperform what you what you'd expect just based looking at their raw stuff all right. Um, all right. Moving on from uh, the the first ten picks, um, you know, one one name that that caught my eye was Phoenix Call. He was the fifteenth round selection uh, that the Red Sox made, and apparently he's just a very very good defensive player. So yeah. can we talk a little bit about that. And and then it also struck me that you know with where he was ranked, uh, it seems like he might be one of those break glass in case of emergency type guys uh, that the Red Sox may only be able to sign if uh, Zanatello or Anderson or some somebody high profile uh, doesn't sign. Are they going to have enough money for a guy like Phoenix Call or is this somebody who's likely to go to college? It's unclear at this point. I, I think it's it's really hard to say without knowing what Teal's getting because I think that's the first domino to fall. Like if he's, you know, four million we have a projected for 4.2 right now. That's just a guess. We don't, we know it's under slob, but we don't know how much or we've heard, I guess I should say. Um, it's hard to say without knowing him because that's like the biggest, as, as much, they are going to save on some of those later picks that we were just talking about, but you know, the max slot for any of those picks is 580,000. They've already said Duffy is not going to get well under slot. It's going to be pretty close to it. So that teal one is kind of the catalyst that this whole thing works under. And, what we have right now is we have them being able to get to around like 600,000 for call. This is obviously just a guess, as I've said, like we're speculating here based on just guessing, looking at past track records and some other factors. But I guess call is more signable than people thought is what we've heard. Um, the Red Sox obviously have made an offer there. We'll, we'll see if he takes it or not, but I think they think they have a chance to sign him. I know when Devin Pearson was interviewed, he said that uh, I believe it was at, at we we expect at most three or four guys won't sign. So, you know, if that's at most, maybe they're hoping they can get someone like him. And I think that if the money falls the way we currently think it might, then they might be able to throw five, six hundred K at him. And it's just a question of his, if that's enough to get him to sign. Um, that's hard to say, but you know, there's that high school shortstop in California we were all waiting for. And uh, I think he's a pretty interesting guy. I know talking to some scouts who, who actually really liked him and were kind of surprised that uh, someone took it, that he might be signable. But we'll see. I mean, if the def- defense is as good as said, there's a very high floor there. And then maybe if, you know, you can take a step forward with the bat, there, there could, he could be a pretty interesting prospect. Not only that, I mean, the name. Oh, it's a great name. It's a great Phoenix name. Call. I mean, that's going to be the best name in the system if he gets in there. I don't know. Blaze Jordan stands might come after you if you say exactly. that. So you better watch out. It's one and I one A. I, I got to say, I like Phoenix Call's name more than Blaze Jordan. But you know what? I, I get that uh, Blaze Jordan has the, the internet mafia of followers that uh, 
come after me if I say that. But yeah, that that actually gives me a lot of hope because if this kid is, you know, a real baseball nut who's just interested in getting in the system, I mean, 600k is nothing to sniff at. You know, you, you, it's it's tough to walk away from that. It's not uh, it's not 150. Yeah. So I, I mean, and that's just a guess. As I said, like once Teal signs, um, I think we'll have a better idea of where things stand. And once we start getting these bonus bonus amounts for like Rose, We Hunt, you know, if you can shave fifty hundred k there, fifty hundred k with another pick, that adds up. So it'll be interesting to see because I mean, when we when when you approach the draft, I always look at it that the top ten rounds are going to sign the guys you take in eleven is going to sign because if you take a guy in the 11th round, you've talked to him, you have a pretty good idea of what he's going to take. And obviously I know they didn't sign their 11th round pick a few years ago, but that was the exception. Um, I think to the rule and you sign a couple college guys after the 10th round usually sign. And then it's the high school guys with a question. And obviously they took three high school guys after the 10th round. And I kind of wonder if they have enough money to sign one of them. That's kind of my hunch. I have no inside info. I'm just guessing, but I wonder if they have, you know, four or five, 600 K and are like, call your first if you want it it's yours if not we'll go to the next guy schlegel and then if not you go to orlowski who was the 20th round pick so that that's just my guess for how it, it will play out and maybe they get none of them maybe they only get one of them maybe who knows maybe they can even get two of them somehow but it, it's just without knowing those early those first 10 round picks it's it's hard to to speculate at this point so obviously call is a, is a really interesting talent but you know from from rounds 11 through 20 was there anyone else who stood out to you as being particularly intriguing and uh also you know relatively signable um i think the 11th round pick uh nelly taylor is pretty interesting uh he's got an awesome backstory he overcame cancer as a kid um which he, he which he used to be a big football player but had to give that up obviously um or not obviously but he had to give that up after uh he after uh when he got back and he's committed to florida state so that's that's a good you know that's obviously a high d1 school and i just you know watching some videos seems like he's a really good defender he can really run and got a projectable frame and maybe you know he, he can tap into some power in pro ball and if that's the case they might have a pretty interesting guy in the 11th round here um I think one thing I've, I've noticed there, if you look at the system over the last couple of years, is there's been a real lack of speed in the system. And obviously, Jaron Duran is an exception. There's a few others. But I think with this draft, it, it was notable that they, they went out and got a bunch of guys who are above average plus runners. And I think uh, Taylor is definitely one of those fits that mold. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that sounds really interesting. I, I love the idea of adding more speed back into the game. You know, before we uh, move on to the major league side of things, Ian, how have you enjoyed the changes that have been made in the game? And, and do you feel like speed is really becoming as important as you'd like it to be in the game? I think they've been great. I mean, I don't, uh, I think the only one that they're really missing that I'd like to see is the challenge system for balls and strikes. I've loved that in triple I don't like robot umps, but I like the ability to challenge what you think is a bad call. And, I think we've seen there's some pretty big games this year that have been flipped because referees or referees umpires have just missed a clear strike or a clear ball call. So How quick is that uh, for the turnaround? In, instantaneous. It's ten. Yeah, seconds. it's super fast. Yeah, Jake, so, Jake, Jake, you've been to Worcester too, so you yeah, see that. yeah, yeah. I, I saw it. I saw it actually happen two or three times uh, in in the last game that I was at a couple weeks ago, and it was it was like almost instantaneous. It was and, really good. And I like the way they presented on the video board where they should like all the fans know what's happening. It's kind of an exciting moment when you get that like challenge 
And I also like the way it's set up. I honestly think it's smart. Um, I think they each team gets three uses, and if you get it right, you keep it. If you get it wrong, you lose it. And so I like that there's some strategy behind it. Like, you can't just challenge every pitch. And it's like, okay, maybe in, like, the second inning with two outs and no one on, there's a 3-0 pitch that's borderline that they call a strike. Like, you probably don't challenge that. But I, I, I think it adds some strategy to the game. And, and I don't know, I, I, I like – I like what it's done at the AAA level, and I'd like to see it at the MLB level. Um, as for the MLB changes, I mean, the shorter game was necessary. I think it's been great. Uh, you know, being able to get out of there in under three hours pretty much every evening is what it should be. Um, I think the game just got way too long, and I think that kind of an une- unexpected or interesting carry-on effect of that is just what we've seen with pitching this year is, you know, Velo guys aren't able to throw us hard. They don't have as much time to recover in between pitches, and I think it's leading to – um, we're seeing obviously more contact and I think that it's kind of changed the way hitters can approach at bats. You know, they now you're seeing the guys lefties, especially they don't have to worry about the shift that more of the fields open for them. And then also once you get on base, if you can run, you got a pretty big advantage this year. I mean, when was the last time we saw guys have almost 40 or 40 plus steals at the all-star break and not just one, there's like multiple, yeah, so, it's like Ricky Henderson levels. Right. So you got Acuna, Estuary, Ruiz. I mean, Ellie De La Cruz is like 20 steals in 15 games or something since he came up. Like, there's just a, it's it's just made the game a lot more exciting. And I think that's what baseball needed is, you know, you need those viral moments. You need those wow plays to, to get the casual fan invested. And obviously, we're always invested. Like, guys like us or, you know, um, even gals, like anyone who, who's into the sport as, as deep as we are, like, we're going to watch either way. But at the end of the day, for the longevity of the game, you need people who aren't fans like we are. You know, you need people who might be just flipping through the channels and they see a baseball game on and they see a wow play and maybe they watch the end of the game and then they start going to the games. Like, that's what they need to, to convert or get those fans um, more invested. And I think that I know just talking to my friends, at least I don't know you guys have been, um, guys who are, you know, more casual fans are now watching baseball totally. a lot more than they were in the past or asking me baseball questions when in the past, like, we would not talk about baseball at all. So I, I have a great story along those lines, actually. So I, I go to this this gym close to my house and, and I was there and I was wearing an Otani Japan shirt um, while I was working out. And, you know, one of the guys who was there knows that, you know, I'm big into baseball and he starts talking to me about Otani and like asking me, you know, is there anybody else doing this? And like, you know, I was talking about how much better he is at doing uh, both of these things than Babe Ruth was at doing both of these things at the same time and that there's really nobody like him. And then I started going into Ellie De La Cruz. And then at the end of it, I was just like, the talent in baseball has literally never been better than it is right now. Uh, and, you know, just just kind of talking to him about all these young stars. So I think like you're absolutely right with the amount of young talent in this game, the generational talent of Otani, the excitement of De La Cruz and all these other guys. It's just like the game's in a really special spot right now. Yeah. And and I think the other thing that I really like is teams are getting more aggressive with those high end prospects like Corbin Carroll, Ellie De La Cruz, guys like that are spending less time in the minors and if you've got a guy that talented, the last thing we want is service time manipulation. And I think yeah. that's the other thing that I give uh, Rob Manfred and the the commissioner's office credit for was they've kind of seems like they fixed that for the most part where, you know, you've got teams calling up Julio Rodriguez for opening day. You've got the Orioles, you know, they've got um, Colton Cowser's up now. Jordan Westberg's up now. I mean, Jackson Holiday's going to be up next year. I would not be surprised at all, frankly, if he makes opening day roster next year, he's that good. 
like there's just incentive to bring those guys up earlier and get them more involved and we're seeing kind of the fruits of that labor because it's so exciting when those players come up like watching LA Daily Cruz and I, I said this on our podcast um I watch the Reds pretty much every night now I love watching the Reds like he's incredible every night the, he does something you have you no idea expect. what he's gonna do and it be, and what's awesome is it's not just him like I think Spencer Steer is fantastic uh, Matt McClain has greatly exceeded any expectations I had of him. Like they're Jonathan winning Indian. without any pitching. Yeah, and that's the crazy thing is their best pitchers on the DL or the IL, and they're still winning. Like it doesn't make any sense, but it's fun to watch. And right. I mean, I look like even like Oakland. Apparently, I, I don't know if that I don't know if this has been confirmed, but I, I saw a report that they were considering calling up Tyler Soderstrom and Zach uh, Jeloff for the second half of the season. Oh wow! Like that's fun. Like yeah, that'd be th- awesome. things like that, like just get, get those young guys up here, get them in the majors and let's see what they can do. And I, I think that it's made the game a lot more fun seeing all those young guys thriving. Absolutely. Definitely. And w- w- with the draft in general, just how many years it often takes for these guys to, to make it in um, probably why there isn't as much buzz with the MLB draft as those other sports, you know, kind of bridging that gap that will all help. Yeah, definitely. Like if if Paul Skeens and uh, Dylan Cruz are in the majors next year, which I think is a perfectly possible outcome, yeah. then yeah, that that'll go a long way to, to kind of dissuading that opinion or that that issue that the draft has had. I do think the one thing I would love to see is just allow trading draft picks. I know why they don't because they don't want owners just selling all their picks because they don't want to pay the bonuses. Mm-hmm. But how cool would it be if like at the deadline you could you know hey maybe I'm shopping this guy and you, you throw in a second round pick with that like I don't know I just think that would be exciting yeah. and I think that's one way to get fans more invested in the draft is to allow trading of picks if I'm a Pittsburgh Pirates fan I don't want anybody talking to Paul Skeens I just want him showing up and being <laughs> the ace next year doing exactly what he's doing right now I hope he's on the Strasburg plan. I would love to see him at some point next year because obviously the Pirates are very. The fact that they're they've been as good as they are without O'Neill Cruz, I think, is a testament to kind of the, the team that Ben Charrington has slowly but surely been putting together there. And if they can get Skeens up there next year, get Cruz back healthy, um, obviously Andy Rodriguez is close. Like that's another team that you know I feel like for years was kind of like a laughing stock, and now all these teams that people were you know heavily criticizing or were saying they were going nowhere, all of a sudden they've just complete for the most part obviously there are exceptions but have uh kind of like completely revamped their farm system and now have turned into like really exciting teams to watch out of nowhere keeping in mind that this is a red sox podcast i also do want to just say that before we close the book on these al central teams um how cool is it that kutch is back with Pittsburgh while this is happening, and Joey Votto is still in Cincinnati while this is happening. Oh, it's great. And I know you're the biggest Joey Votto fan. I think I know. So I love um, that. Yeah. <laughs> I know you do. So it's, uh, you know, it, it's definitely cool. And, and I thought that was a cool, that was nice when uh, Koch was like, I don't want to be traded. So stop talking about it. Like, and, you know, he he's he's back where he kind of grew up. Koch was one of my favorite players, uh, you know, when he was in his heyday. So being able to watch those guys be on winning teams again, it must be so fun for them and kind of assume that mentor role is very cool. Yeah. It's nice to see that come full circle. Um, let's, let's get to the Red Sox system though. Guys who are already signed, who are there. Uh, one of the biggest breakouts in the system this year has been Roman Anthony, who was promoted to high A in June. Um, he had some underwhelming numbers when he did get promoted, but there were a lot of things that the organization saw um, that led to that promotion. So can you talk about some of the things that they saw there and sort of how your evaluation of Roman Anthony has changed uh, during his breakout season? 
Yeah, no, it, it, it's a good point. And, and I, I think it's it, he's a great example of the in, the information gap that still exists at the minor league level. Um, I think, obviously, baseball's done a great job at the major league level of making all those advanced statistics very accessible to everyone. You can just go on Baseball Savant and pretty much, not all, but like most interesting metrics are available there. But when you get to the minor leagues, uh, except for the few levels that have the StatCast data on, I think it's AAA and the Florida State League, I want to say. Um, it's not available for minor leaguers. And that was the case with Anthony is when, you know, if you looked at his season stat line, as you said, it's, it was pretty underwhelming. Like he got promoted, uh, to Greenville. He was hitting two, I'm oh, sorry, wrong one. He was hitting 228, 376, 316 when he got promoted, uh, one home run two nine doubles, uh, 38 strikeouts, 38 walks and 158 at bats. So, you know, about 190 plate appearances or so. Nothing really jumps off the page to you there other than the OBP, right? But when you looked at when you looked at some of the more advanced data with him, he was hitting the ball extremely hard. You know, his 90th percentile eggs velocity is over 104 miles an hour in A ball, which is uh, that's a really good metric for seeing you know when how hard how hard how can guys impact the baseball basically. Uh, he was hitting his hard hit rate was good. He was not chasing and he was making a ton of contact in the zone. And I think that they saw is that he was just someone who just wasn't being challenged with the pitchers there. And, and I think this has kind of been an over an overarching trend with my, minor league baseball this year is that uh, low A is not good. It's it's the worst. I feel like it's been in a while. And obviously part of that is due to the the dissolution of the short season A ball affiliates. But guys the pitching there is just not good and most of the hitters aren't you know there there's some guys who would had to be rushed up there because there's no more short season a ball to send them to and i think anthony was just too advanced with his approach and it was causing him to just be too passive and that's why he also salem is a very bad park to hit in that's the other thing um salem really just destroys power so i think they they saw that he needed that challenge and similar to what's happened with alan castro recently who was just promoted to greenville um get them up to high a see what they do against the pitching there and obviously since he's been high a's just hitting the ball everywhere uh he's i think he has eight home runs there already in high a his 90th percent exit velo has jumped to over to around 107 miles an hour which would put him i think fourth on the red Sox if he were on the red Sox this year and doing that against major league pitching obviously that's you can't really make that comparison (laughs) but it gives you an idea of like he's putting up like mlb quality batted ball data um already and he's 19 and that's just insane and he's doing that with you know borderline like well above average chase rates and zone contact rates so he's just a really exciting player they, they nailed that draft pick i mean he looks like a potential you know there's a significant ceiling here like we're talking about all-star potential and the fact that he's been able to make such a seamless transition to pro ball is so impressive do you feel like first and second rounders might be making the jump straight to high a in the future because of the the gap between low a and high a pitching at this point it, it may be a truer talent test for them uh i think with college kids yes i mean we saw it this year chase mydroth did it and he is already obviously in portland um granted he did get to salem last year for like 70 plate appearances or something but still i think like teal is a great example of someone i expect to start next year in greenville i'd be surprised if he didn't start in greenville next year i think with high school kids and the the latin guys you still obviously want to take it a little slower and make them force the issue but you can figure you you know pretty quickly the guys who need that more aggressive assignment and um i think that that's what the red Sox have shown and i I give them a ton of credit for this they've shown a willingness to push those guys more aggressively than past seasons i feel like they've been quicker on promotions than they have in the past and um 
yeah, I, I, I think it's good in the long run to get the – if a guy's dominating a level, there's no point in leaving him there. Like, push him to a level where they're challenged. And I think that's something they've been really good at this year is, you know, knowing when to move guys up to the next level when it's appropriate. Before we move on to uh, talking about a couple of pitchers here, can you just compare a little bit um, the, the ceiling of a guy like Roman Anthony to Miguel Blaise? Because when we talk about Blaise, it's, you know, the, the five-tool talent potential impacts the game in a lot of different ways. But Roman Anthony, you know, the way that you've been talking about him and the way that the numbers have been showing up at, at high A, it seems like, you know, there's quite a bit of upside there as well, too. Can you can you talk about how those guys compare? Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's a good question. I, I think um, I think that uh, power-wise, they, they, they both have, like, plus raw power. I think the way they're going to get there might be a little different. I think um, Anthony has a better approach. He's kind of more consistent with his at-bats, whereas Blaze, I think it's going to be kind of that – there's going to be hot streaks. There's going to be cold streaks, but he'll get there eventually. Um, Blaze is a better runner, at least was. It's, it's hard to say right now because obviously he's out for the season and we haven't, we don't know how he's going to come back from his shoulder surgery. But I, I think that they both have, you know, potential to be impact players on offense and then defense. I think um, Blaze has a better shot at center field. I would say he's a little more athletic. He's obviously got that more speed, but I think Anthony's got a chance to stick there too. But either way, like they, they both, if they reach their potentials, both have the ceiling where if they have to move to a corner, it's fine. You know, it's not the end of the world. Well, but, I mean, it's a, it's a good problem to have, to have both yeah. of them. That's really nice, yeah. Uh, let's talk about a couple of promotions recently, uh, starting with pitchers. Uh, Wickelman Gonzalez recently, it sounds like he'll be promoted to double-A. Uh, Luis Perales promoted to high-A. Um, you know, with Gonzalez, he has a 5.14 ERA on the year, but his really, you know, his ups have been high and his lows have been low if you look at the, the game to game. And then Perales recently um, has just been on a tear, has had a, a 10 strikeout and a 12 strikeout outing, a lot of five, six shutout uh, appearances after a slow start. Um, so w- with the two of them, what kind of developments have you seen um, and kind of what do you potentially project their um most likely outcome and and ceiling with each of those pitchers it's an interesting one because i i think part of the reason why the red sox have been were were so willing to promote the two of them is actually both of them are rule five eligible this offseason which is not ideal um especially with paralysis uh, case pitchers at the triple a that are already on the 40 that are not quite taking the steps forward that you'd want this year yeah, so I, I think they'll have room. It's just going to be a tough one because, like, you don't really have room for so many guys who are not going to be up in the majors. And we've seen, obviously, with the Red Sox this year with all the injuries they've had, they've had to lo- use a lot of their 40-man players. So it might be hard to carry multiple of these guys. But uh, with Gonzalez, he's someone who, I, as you said, he, he's obviously his season numbers are not great. But, like, if you break it down, like, since May, he had a really rough start of the season. Like, there's no sugarcoating. His April was pretty bad. Since May 1st, he's 54 innings, 39 hits allowed, 26 walks, which is too high, but 91 strikeouts in 54 innings. That's a lot, you know. Um, 3.48 ERA, which is fine, and opponents are hitting 196, 295, 322 in that stretch against him. So he's someone, he's he's got premium stuff. It's just the consistency and the command. There are questions with both of those. That's why I I think long-term he's, I'm trending towards reliever with him. I wouldn't obviously not going to shoehorn him in that role yet, but I think that might be something that ends up happening with him. Sure. Uh, I think per- 
Perales is more likely has a slightly better chance to start. I like he's got three pitches. Um, you know, you can they're all potential above average plus pitches. It, as you said, like since mid May, it's thirty four innings, sixteen hits allowed, eleven walks, fifty strikeouts. Opponents hitting one thirty seven, two seventeen, two fourteen. Wow. He's given up two extra base hits in thirty four innings, and most impressively, his swing strike rate is like twenty percent in that time. So yeah, uh, paralysis stuff is nasty. He misses a ton of bats. He's got, um, he's got that fastball that has, that checks all the boxes. Like he's got the velo, he's got the, uh, the vertical break that gives it life. He just with him, it's just command and control, finding consistency with his delivery and consistently throwing strikes. And if he does that, he's got this guy's the limit for him. He has the highest ceiling of any pitcher in the system, in my opinion. Um, and it's just, it's, it's nice to see it translating already so quickly with someone like him and, yeah, I think it's going to be a good challenge for him at Greenville, but I think he was ready um, both because he was just, he was dominating those hitters and also, though, with the Rule 5 status. You you want to see it in Greenville, and if it's good, he's probably someone you have to protect because of that. Jake, Jake will tell you that I get a little too fired up about the uh, the stats of some of these low minors pitchers, but uh, when I see those big K numbers, I can't help it. Yeah, we, we got to keep Bob uh, under control with, with these guys. We, we have to have like a, a double A shock collar for him here with uh, with some of these guys. He gets a little excited. Yeah. Yeah. But with, with, with understanding, I mean, I'm excited about Perales too. Um, talking about double A though, Blaze Jordan was just recently promoted to double A. Um, Everyone's favorite prospect. Everybody's favorite prospect, uh, and, and potentially the second best name in the Red Sox system, depending on what Phoenix call does. Uh, <laughs> but um, is this the test that we've been waiting for? I feel like you know, as as I've listened to many an episode of, of you and Chris talking, I mean, it always felt like whenever you guys would talk about Blaze Jordan, there would be all these caveats about like. Well, can he handle this or can he handle that? And and uh, we we've seen him pass a lot of tests, but I feel like the biggest test here is is double A. This is what we've kind of been waiting for. So, what are you looking to see from him at this level? What are you worried about might be exposed? You know, uh, and has he filled any of those holes that he's had in his game along the way? It is. Uh, it is going to be interesting. And I think when I talk about the low minors being down, I think that it, it's just created there's there's a very big gap between high A and double A these days. And we've seen some guys even in the Red Sox system go up there like Matthew Lugo comes to mind, Alex Benellis, guys who have been excellent in Greenville and gone up to double A and just not been able to hit or make consistent contact. Um, Nico Cavadas is another guy like that. And the thing I that the concern I have with Blaze Jordan is there's a few. Um, he's still very aggressive at the plate. Like it's above average chase rate. He doesn't see very many pitches, and so I'm slightly worried. And he's got some struggles with spin, with good spin. Um, so I'm interested to see how he adjusts to that because Double A I think is the level when you start seeing those better breaking balls more consistently. Whereas in High A you see a lot of like cement mixers, just pitches that kind of just are rolling to the plate that you can easily hit. So it'll be interesting to see how he adjusts to those that type of spin up there but then i think the bigger concern with me is just velocity um he's got a below average ops against pitches 94 plus in high a this year and that's something that's been a trend for his entire career and i'm just slightly worried that his bat is a little slow and is going to have some trouble against that more upper echelon a lot velocity that you're going to more consistently see in the high minors and so those are kind of the main things that just 
secondary, how he handles breaking balls, how he handles velocity, and how if the approach, you know, if he's going to be more patient and not get himself out necessarily chasing bad pitches. Um, that's the kind of stuff I'm going to be looking for, and I think Double A is a good test for that because you got guys who can command it, you guys who can spin a breaking ball, and you got a lot of guys who are thrown in the mid 90s, and so. Yeah, I, I think this is the big test for him. I mean, this is what we've been waiting for, as you said. And if he can continue to put up the numbers like this and kind of show some adjustments in those areas, I think that's when we'll start putting the up arrow next to him. But for now, especially with his limited defensive value, I just need to see it at the plate. You know, he has to hit because I don't think he's a third baseman. I think he's probably a first baseman long term. And we've seen the bar for first base offense is really high. And so, you know, this is kind of what we've been waiting for. And, um, if he can go up there and obviously I, I like the adjustments he made this year, he improved from when he was in Greenville last year. Whereas, you know, last year, I think it was, yeah, it was like 301, 387, 451 this year, 324, 385, 533. So that's good. You know, his strikeout rates always been good. Um, but that's the kind of stuff that once you get to double a, it tends to jump. So I think this will be, yeah, this is, this is the test um, will be a good test for him. And I think that if he can pass that, that'll be the first kind of like, check mark that we've been looking for and kind of waiting for with him is, is he a chip uh for the red sox at the trade deadline you know considering this is a this is a test he could very well fail here his numbers look good i mean is is it time to sell high on blaze jordan i mean it's one of those things that i, I if i know this other teams do you know what i mean right like, yeah a, a, other teams are seeing the same thing they have access to the same information so it's hard yeah. these days to pull one over like that. Like I, I think he obviously has value. Like don't get me wrong. If they were yeah. to 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 move him in a deal, they could definitely get something back. But I think that in order to maximize the value with him, it's better to hold and see what happens with him in Double A, and you know it might not work out. And then if that happens, so be it. But if he if he does show some adjustments in those areas I highlighted earlier, then maybe he's someone who can turn into either you know a potential asset for the Red Sox MLB team or as a trade chip down the line. Makes sense. Moving on to um, Marcelo Meyer, you know, a year ago, Ian, we talked about kind of how he was checking all the boxes in his first year, and then within the last month, he's been promoted up to double A. You know, you yep. look at the stat line, it's a bit of a slow start where he's hitting 196 and his OBP is 266, but with a 186 BABIP, so you probably, you know, his block numbers are pretty good, his K numbers are pretty good, you have to think that that will turn at some point. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't think that is sustainable. <laughs> right. So kind of like in the, in the past year, you know, have you changed what you think his realistic ceiling or floor are? And, and what do you think, probably the question everyone has is, is what's the ETA here? You look at Anthony Volpe being called up an opening day this year with the Yankees, you know, could we see Meyer at some point next year in your mind? Yeah, I, I think that's definitely realistic. Um, as you said, like the numbers aren't great. The underlying stuff is it's you know it's fine. Uh, he he's the biggest thing for me is and the thing I've seen him too at Double A a few times that I've noticed is he, he still gets caught out by spin a little bit too much for my liking. Um, his just second I don't know if it's whether it's pitch recognition or just gets a little kind of like antsy in the box, but he, he definitely has some trouble with good breaking balls, and so that's something he's gonna have to make an adjustment to. Um, but otherwise, I, I, as you said, with that bad, if it's going to come up and I, I, I think it's only a matter of time before he has one of those weeks where he's going to, you know, hit 350, 450, 550, and his numbers are going to be fine again. Right. So I'm not that worried about his double A numbers, especially with the defense has been really good. Um, watching him play shortstop, it's, I think it's, it's potential above average plus defender at shortstop. And so when you, when you put all that together, I think the ceiling and everything is pretty static for me. Uh, 
I think, you know, obviously, you know, you're looking at potential 60 if everything goes right. If not, you know, he's still potential solid above average regular for several years, uh, for years to come. And, you know, and I, I don't like compare, don't like comps at all, but just kind of like stylistically kind of reminds me a little bit of Brandon Crawford um, with the lefty swing, someone who's got some power, have has some good power seasons, will have some good average seasons, plays good defense. And, you know, he's going to stick around for a long time. Um, I think that's that's kind of what Meyer could be. I, I I don't know if it's like he's got the the impact potential of some of the other shortstops we've seen, like guys like, I mean, Jackson Holiday comes to mind. But uh, even like he's there's not the ceiling of a guy like Elliot De La Cruz or anything like that. But I think he's going to be a really steady player for a long time. And I think that it's realistic to think that, you know, if he finishes the year in Portland, starts next year in AAA, that by midseason or maybe even earlier, if he forces the issue, uh, he could be up and with the Red Sox and kind of locked down in one of those middle infield spots for the foreseeable future. Sure. Will he be as good as a reliever as Brandon Crawford is? Uh, I've never seen a pitch, so I can't tell you. <laughs> did you did you enjoy seeing Brandon Crawford, though? Because he actually did look pretty good out there on the mound. I think because of the way they've changed and another rule change, position players don't pitch as much. When they do, it's it's pretty fun to watch now. Like, I mean, I remember seeing, like, uh, the Yankees, Kiner Falefa, go out there and throw, like, what was he throwing, like, 75-mile-an-hour fastballs and, like, 50-mile-per-hour curveballs or whatever. Or uh, I can't remember who it was. Someone was throwing, like, 35-mile-per-hour pitches. Like, or Then you got Brandon Crawford throwing the 90s. So it's like, yeah, yeah no, that's uh, – I mean, maybe he could. I'm sure he's got he's got a good arm, but I don't uh, I don't think we will be seeing that anytime soon. Well, uh, a couple of guys were recently promoted to AAA. Uh, these both these guys were promoted after I saw them, so I didn't get to didn't get to see either of these guys. But uh, Rafaela and uh, Ryan Fernandez were both promoted. Um, with Rafaela, the question that I have is, you know, did he show enough to the Red Sox at AA? you know, with the swing decisions, I know that's something that you and Chris have talked a lot about on your show is just sort of him working on, uh, good takes essentially, and, and not just taking pitches to take pitches. Um, did he show enough of that? And then with Ryan Fernandez, he's obviously been one of the breakout relief prospects to see have a chance at impacting the big league club this year. I'll start with Rafaela and, I think as the season has gone on, his uh, things like his chase rate had decreased, so he's doing a better job there. And I think the most important thing he did was at the early in the season, he was just missing a lot in the zone. And I think that was partially because he was trying to take pitches. And as a result, he was missing hittable pitches, if that makes sense. And I think that he kind of like went back to his ways of, I don't need to see four pitches if there's two strikes in there. And there are strikes I think I can hit. And it worked for him. Like he had a really good stretch before his promotion. Um, you know, he's hit making more consistent hard contact, which is good. Still too many ground balls for my liking. He doesn't lift the ball as much, but with his speed, that's actually might not be the worst thing if you're trying to get on base. Still chases at a really high rate. It's among the highest in the system. And I, I just, I don't, I'm not sure that's fixable at this point, but I think if he can be someone who makes you pay for any pitches in the zone, which is kind of what he was doing at the end of his time as Portland, it's something you might be able to manage. Um, especially if he's playing the elite defense that he can. So, yeah, I, I think he he, re, he checked those boxes enough in Portland. I mean, I think he almost had like 500 plate appearances or something there too. So at some point, there's going to be diminishing returns. Like you're not you're not going to see any new arms. It's Nothing's really going to change at that level. So I think it was time to get him up to AAA. And then so far in AAA, I mean, we'll see. Um, it's a small sample size right now. But 
I think for him, if he's going to carry such a high chase rate, which I always think the chase rate is going to be above average or more, he's got to have to make consistent contact on pitches in the zone. And that's something he's done in a small sample in AAA so far. So if he can continue to do that, then maybe there's a chance that he's someone who can kind of be one of those outliers who can get away with an extremely high chase rate. Yeah, and it's it's uh, not hard to envision his defense playing in the majors right now. Oh yeah, no. If 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 he if he was uh, kind of a more polished hitter, I, I think there's a chance he could be up in the big leagues already. But it's just obviously he'd be a different prospect then. But yeah, no, his defense is legit. It's major league caliber right now. Well, Fernandez is a guy who I think I, I have to credit you with. I think you're the first person I ever heard talk about him, and obviously he's had a great season. Thank you. Um, you know, is that stuff for Fernandez good enough to get him up to the Red Sox this year and impacting that team? I think there's a chance. Um, I, I He does a few things that I really like. And number one is he gets ahead of hitters. Like he's consistently ahead 0-2-1-2, which matters. Like I like pitchers who throw strikes, especially out of the bullpen. And he's got really good velocity. You know, he sits in the mid to high 90s. He's been up to like 9,900 miles an hour. He's got a good cutter, uh, good good breaking ball too. So I, I think there's, especially, and he's another guy who's Rule 5 eligible, or he was last year, but he is again this year. I think there's a chance he's up, you know, by in August or something, especially. I think there's just more upside with him than some of the relievers they've been going through back and forth at the back of that 40-man roster. So I would not be surprised at all if we see him at some point this year. And uh, kind of like they did with Frank Herman last year, like give him a chance, see what he can do. And if you don't like what you see, then you DFA him in the offseason. But I think that he, he's got better stuff than Herman, so I think there's definitely a chance we could see him uh, helping out. I'm not sure he can, he's going to be an impact guy, but he, like, could he be better than the guys they're running out and as their you know tenth, eleventh, twelfth reliever on the staff? I think definitely. Well, they they made room for him by getting rid of Ryan Brazier. Now they can have a new Ryan. <laughs> All right, get the uh, the the dog collar buzzer out, Jake. I got one more <laughs> uh, young pitcher, your Donnie Monegro, who. Kind of what stuck out to me, Ian, was when he got called up to low A and immediately threw a two-hitter with 11 strikeouts in his first low A start. You know, throw the complex league starts out, okay, but then he's gone and he's he's shoved twice since he's gotten to low A. He's five innings, he's given up a total of two runs in five total starts, you know, in the two levels combined. Um, you know, is I, I know very early on, but it seems like he could be kind of a notable riser in the rankings this year, just based off of what I've read so far. Yeah, no, he he's someone who actually I saw in spring training, and he he was it was obviously two innings, so you can't take too much away from it. But I was pretty intrigued by what I saw, like mid nineties fastball, good feel for a breaking ball, um, you know, high spin gets really gets over it and can bury it down in the zone or throw it for strikes. And then, as you said, he he's dominated the FCL. He dominated his first couple of starts in Salem. Um, and he's definitely an interesting guy. Like he's got four pitches, uh, the fastball curveball is kind of the bread and butter, but throws a slider and a change up too. And I think that, yeah, if you're talking about those low minors arms, he's definitely one of the more interesting guys. I'd like to see more consistency with the delivery and more strikes, but he misses a lot of bats and that plays these days. And so if he can continue to show stuff like that, he definitely could become a uh, very interesting pretty quickly. Awesome. We didn't have to use the shock collar at all for that one, so that was good. Um, all right, so before we get you out of here, um, there are six names that we love updates on. You know, these can be real quick hits. Uh, okay. But, you know, just kind of how these players are doing and, and whether or not you've seen 
enough this year from these guys to sort of change your outlook on them. Uh, the first is Chase Mydroth. I like him. I think he's can really hit. I think he, he'll get on base. I have concerns about his impact ability, but I think that there's enough OBP and hit tool there to get him into the big leagues. It's just I'm not sure what capacity it will be in. Um, it's tough because he can't play shortstop, and that's that's just that's a really tough one when you're kind of trying to peg someone in that role in the future because if you're going to carry a bench infielder you want them to be able to play shortstop but with his on base skills and his hit tool he's going to get to the big leagues it's just i'm not sure you know if there's enough impact for him to be a regular eventually but i still really like him as a prospect okay um all right next one is yo johan fran garcia the catcher (laughs) yeah that's my guy i uh i saw him in spring training and he hit some nukes and that was very interesting because obviously i'd never seen him before and he can really impact baseball. He's 18, but his he's got good exit velo data. Um, he hits the ball very hard, and he can hit the ball very far. And I've seen him, you know, turn around like saw him hit a, or he hit a homer off like you know pitchers who've been in pro ball for several years, and he's 18. And so yeah, it's it's really interesting. And I, I think the other part that makes it interesting is he actually has a chance to stick a catcher. Um, he's got a really good arm the receiving and you know it's obviously that's all that stuff's usually a work in progress but i've liked a lot and heard some really good things on him so he's someone definitely up arrow if we're talking about guys like lower down in the system who could rise uh, by the end of the season he's definitely on my list you know when i looked at him with the strong arm and the bat being so far ahead on the catching side of, uh, than it is on the catching side of things i kind of thought about um Guys like uh, Josh Donaldson in that path, you know, maybe moving him over to third base. Do you think that that's a possibility if if the bat continues to outpace the defense? I mean, maybe, but I actually think he do- he's got like a legit chance to stick a catcher. So if he can have that bat at like he's he'll you most likely always be a bat first guy. But yeah. with his type of upside at the plate, if that guy can be even an average catcher, which I think there's there's definitely a chance for him to be like a regular type catcher defensively then you have to keep that player a catcher as long as possible he's not a he's not like his defense is far enough along that i wouldn't consider that right now okay uh yoel and cespedes absolutely tearing up the dsl mm-hmm. yeah he's uh he's he's very interesting he's someone um that kind of caught on our radar obviously got i think the biggest bonus or one of the biggest bonuses in that class and he's done nothing but hit down there um he's obviously small but he's shown the ability to hit the baseball hard and far which is pretty interesting good approach good hit tool and yeah definitely up arrow and he's someone that i'm very much looking forward to when he gets stateside either probably in maybe for instructs this season or next season for spring training okay cutter coffee uh second rounder from last year certainly a big athlete what's going on with him He's he had a slow start to the season, but I really like what he's done lately. Um, he's gotten a lot more comfortable, I think, as the season has gone on. And I, I think he's a great example of a player who really needed Lowell. Um, if if there wasn't if Lowell or short season A ball still existed, he starts there. He, he I don't think he goes straight to Salem, but without it, you know, a guy like that is kind of in no man's land. Like, what do you do? Do you do you keep them back or do you just send them? up to uh do you just push it a little more aggressively and kind of let him let him play through the struggles and i think that, that that's what they chose to do and i think it's you know it, it it's it's been rough at times but i think i like the direction he's trending 
last 26 games is 269, 356, 471 with four home runs, uh, 26 strikeouts only. So he's cut his strikeout rate substantially from what it was earlier in the year, 12 walks too. So he's showing it. The approach is getting better. He's making more consistent hard contact. All the all the metrics are trending in the right direction. So I, I like what I've seen as the season has gone on. All right, Marvin Alcantara. Um, <laughs> what, what have we seen from him? Uh, he's a very very good defender, and he is a has a really good approach. He just needs to get stronger. I think that's the biggest thing limiting him right now. Is he's just not very physical. Um, kind of a, he's he's got a projectable frame. It's just he's very slight right now. And I think that's what we're seeing. You know, if you look at his his numbers down in the FCL, he's only hitting 220, 314, 275. But he's got the approach. He's got the pitch recognition. It's just he just can't really impact the baseball. His, his exit velos are really low. Um, and it's just about getting, you know, physically developing with him. You know, he needs to get stronger. He needs to add some muscle. And that's the biggest thing holding him back right now. All right. And then the last one here, uh, hoping that uh, this is better news than it was last time we talked about him. Uh, Fraley Encarnacion, anything <laughs> good going on there? Or is this still a little bit of a disappointment? No, he, he uh, well, he's hurt right now. So it's, there's not a lot going on at all um, because of his injury, but uh, yeah, he, he's really raw. There's a lot, a lot of swing and miss. He's got power potential, but yeah, a lot of swing and miss, a lot of chase, um, kind of the approach is a real work in progress. So Kind of right now, he's just—it's more or less the same issues we talked about uh, before, and he's obviously injured, so nothing's yet. Yeah, nothing's changed right now. All right. Well, as always, Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has been tremendous. Just uh, if you're into prospects, this is the episode for you. So thanks for coming on and chatting with us. Uh, you know, guys, check out SoxProspects.com. Uh, donate. Uh, follow Ian on Twitter at Ian Cundall. Follow Sox Prospects. They're on Twitter. They're on Instagram. Lots of great stuff going up all the time over there. Um, and, uh, yeah, Bob, thank you as well. So, uh, gentlemen, yeah, th- this, this was great. awesome. Thanks for coming on, Ian. Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. It's always fun to talk prospects. And, uh, you know, you guys know I love this stuff. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And uh, you can find Bob and I on Twitter as well. You can find Bob at BobOzGood15. You can find me at ActiveJake. And uh, as usual, we'll be in your ears next week around this same time. So thanks so much for listening, and we'll be again with you next week. <laughs>